Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 133, The Order of the Order. In the century that followed the last of the Prussian and Livonian uprisings, the states of the Teutonic Order in the Baltic experienced a period of economic growth and internal and external stability that is almost unique in the chaotic 14th century. How was it possible that a religious order became an astute manager of its estates, a de facto member, if not by its own claim, head of the Hanseatic League, and the organizer of the greatest chivalric adventure holidays for Europe's aristocracy? That is what we try to find out in this episode. But, as you know, there will now be 20 seconds of me blabbing on about the Patreon account and how eternally grateful I am for all of your support. If you want to skip that, you should hit the 15-second button now. Great. Now that we are amongst friends, let me tell you what these skipper-dippers miss. The chance to feel good about themselves. As it says in the Acts of the Apostles, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So here I am sacrificing myself to receive either on my Patreon account at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website at historyofthegermans.com slash support so that you can all enjoy the act of supporting the show. Just ask Adam M, MSG, Andreas and John A who are already indulging in the delights of giving. But now, back to the show. When the embers of the last burnt-down Prussian village had cooled off in 1283, a new society was emerging in Prussia. By the end of the next century, the population of Prussia, according to Jürgen Sarnowski, was comprised of about 140,000 old Prussians, 100,000 Germans and 26,000 Poles. For reference in his calculation, this would have been an increase in the population by about 60% versus the time before the conquest. Note that he estimated the original population at 170,000, quite a bit lower than the estimate of 200 to 300,000 I used in episode 130. But as we are in the Middle Ages, all these estimates have a huge range of error embedded in it. What is, however, quite clear is that the late medieval Prussian society was split between Germans and non-Germans. The distinction was, however, not necessarily ethnic, but linguistic and, most significantly, legal. There were two sets of legal frameworks for people living in Prussia. The Germans had come as part of a large-scale economic development program, and these initial settlers had come from Brandenburg, Pomerania and Silesia, and were themselves descendants of the 12th century first wave of settlers we discussed in Season 5. As the Teutonic Knights moved further east and expanded cultivation deeper and deeper into the forest, settlers were recruited not just from the empire, but more and more from the population of the territories that had already been settled in Prussia. And that included not just the Germans, but also Prussians, Lithuanians and Poles, who were granted the status of German settlers. These German settlers, in inverted commas, were typically given a plot of land usually around 33 hectares. Their leader, the locator, who had organized a convoy and had negotiated the deal with the brothers, would get twice that, as would the local church. The locator would then become the Schulze, the village mayor with the right to administer the so-called lower justice, so petty crime and civil disputes. The mayor would often get the fishing and game rights, 
And in exchange, the mayor was obliged to fight for the order in light armor on top of the annual rent he had to pay like all the other free peasants. Once the village was established, the villagers had the right to choose their own mayor. So these were the so-called German villages. As for the Prussian villages, life was a bit harder. A Prussian peasant would usually have only about 20 hectares, i.e. two-thirds of the German peasant. They had to provide not rent but services and a percentage of their crop to the knights. They did have a foreman, a starost, who represented them, but the starost had no legal powers. He was supervised by a separate administrative structure that was supported by the Wittingers, a sort of Prussian minor nobility. Effectively, the Prussian and the German villagers lived completely separate lives and there are regular mentions of priests or brothers who needed translators to communicate with the leaders of the Prussian village, literally next door. The administrative entity above the village was the Vogt or Pfleger, usually a knight or a grey-cloaked brother based in a smaller castle or estate. The Vogt then reported to the Comtur. In Prussia, a Comtur was usually a whole convent of Teutonic Knights. Based on the arithmetic of the New Testament, each Comtur was supposed to contain at least 12 brothers who lived in a large fortified convent. The Comtur would collect the rents paid by the free villagers as well as their share of the crops of the unfree peasants. The proceeds were first used by the brothers in the Comtur for their needs such as food and military equipment and then any surplus was sent up to the Prussian master. The Prussian master, alongside the Livonian master and the German master, was one of the central roles within the Teutonic Knights. These institutions had become necessary when the order expanded geographically to a point where the Grand Master could not be present in all important centres. And that was fairly early on. Hermann von Salza never went to Prussia, which meant that he appointed Hermann Balk as his representative on the Baltic, making him the first Prussian master. And since Livonia was separated from Prussia by Lithuania, and they still had the sword brother tradition, there was the need for a Livonian master. The office of the German master, who was in charge of many of the order's possession in the empire, and hence in charge of recruitment and supply to the fighting outposts, was another necessary management function. When the Grand Masters moved to Prussia in 1309, the office of the Prussian master was abolished and its function integrated with that of the Grand Master. And finally, at the top of the pyramid stood the Grand Master. But he did not stand there on his own. He had a number of senior officers in charge of different aspects of the order. There was the Grand Comtur, who was the Grand Master's deputy and in charge of operations during peacetime. The Grand Marshal was in charge of the military capabilities of the order. He made sure that there were enough horses, armour and siege engines available and he led the forces in war. Well, unless the Grand Master did that himself. The Spitteler was in charge of the hospitals. We should not forget that the Teutonic Order was initially set up to run a hospital in Acre and they did maintain several hospitals throughout their existence, one of which was in Elbing in Prussia. Then we have the Trapier, in charge of clothing, though he quickly became an important figure in the brothers' training operations. And finally, the Tressler, the treasurer who looked after the order's finances. All of these senior officers were, with very few exceptions, recruited from the Knight Brothers of the order. 
However, the order consisted not just of Knight Brothers. There were the Priest Brothers, whose role was to conduct the religious ceremonies. They were the only members of the order who were ordained priests. So each Comtur would almost always have at least one Priest Brother so that the members could observe their religious duties as monks, namely to pray at Mass every three hours. As the order became more and more exclusive, they were blocking out commoners. So those who wanted to join without being noble were admitted as sergeants or grey cloaks. They would wear not the white cloak with a black cross of the full brothers, but a grey one, still with a black cross. Their jobs varied from administration and commerce to fighting alongside the knights. And then there were the half-brothers, men who had not made the sacred vows, but still had dedicated themselves to the order. These could be just servants or farmhands. Sometimes it could be donors who used the Teutonic Knights' convent as a retirement home to live there, sometimes even with their wives. And what really surprised me is that there were even half-sisters and even full sisters as in nuns in the Teutonic Order. These were very few and they were concentrated in specific houses in Alsace and Switzerland, so they weren't really connected to the Order, but they did exist. All this sounds a bit as if there was a strict hierarchical organization with a Grand Master at the top who was sending orders down the chain of command. But that wasn't quite the case. Major decisions had to be taken by the Grand Chapter of the Order, not the Grand Master. The Grand Master could not even get his hands on the Order's treasury. It was kept in a strongbox that had three keys, one for the Grand Master, one for the Grand Comptur, and one for the Tressler. And when the Grand Master's policies did not meet with the approval of the Knights, he could be deposed. And quite often was. So, for instance, after the fall of Acre, the order was divided on the question whether to hold out in Venice in the hope of another crusade into Palestine or to permanently move to Prussia. Most of the Grand Masters between 1297 and 1330, when these decisions were made, were deposed, or at least partially denied their powers. And one of them, Werner von Osselen, was even murdered by one of the brothers. The Grand Master's election also reflected the sort of more corporate nature of the order. The tradition was that the dying Grand Master would hand the seal of the order to his deputy, who would then organize the election. Knights from all over Europe would come to the election that often took place in Marburg and then after 1309 in Marienburg in Prussia. It kicked off with a solemn mass. Then the deputy would propose an election officer to the knights present. Once that election officer was approved, the officer in turn would propose 13 electors, eight knight brothers, one priest brother and four grey cloaks. These had to be chosen carefully to reflect the different administrative centers like Livonia, Prussia, Germany and originally Palestine, as well as different branches and ranks. The electors would then debate in private and choose a new Grand Master. And as for the various offices, it was the Grand Master who appointed them, and in principle, every one of the major offices was to be reappointed every year at an annual Grand Chapter. This became a little bit cumbersome given distances and the like, and so that it became an event happening only every six years. 
but even outside the Grand Chapter, the Grand Master could at any time recall or redeploy brothers from one post to the next. And he very often did. We also hear very often that brothers would retire from senior positions as they reached an age where they were no longer able to discharge their duties. If we take a bird's eye view of that structure, it looks as if the Teutonic Knights operated much closer to the way a modern bureaucracy works than a medieval kingdom. Though there was surely some nepotism in the appointments at times, but positions weren't inherited as knights had no legitimate children, and there was little evidence of corruption and the transfer of order property to the family of grandmasters or other offices is rarely mentioned. So by medieval standards, this was actually a meritocracy. And there was something even more unusual about Prussia. There was no local nobility, except for the leadership class of the old Prussians, the Vitunians. Despite the fact that the Teutonic Order were almost all aristocrats, they did not establish the kind of feudal system they had grown up in. Actually, where they acquired territory with an existing local nobility, they tried to buy them out and get rid of them. The absence of a castle-dwelling nobility, and the fact that the Knights brothers stuck to their vows of chastity, poverty and obedience, at least broadly, removed some of the main scourges of medieval life, the endless feuds. Because we are in the 14th century, and this is a time when the four horsemen of the apocalypse, pestilence, war, famine and death, are roaming all across Europe. It is not just the Hundred Years' War that spreads misery in France, but within the empire there is incessant fighting. Take the Markgrafs of Meissen, the House of Wittin we looked at, I think, in episode 108. There is one war between brothers that is followed by the next, as the winner of the first contest has two sons who then fight over the succession again. And on top of these endless feuds, you have the Black Death that killed sometimes half or more of a town's population. Prussia was spared quite a bit of this pain. The absence of a local nobility, there weren't any feuds. The Teutonic Knights had their internal differences, but they never spilled out into open warfare. When the Grand Master Werner von Oslin was murdered, the brothers insisted that it was an act of just one disaffected individual. As for the plague, it did reach Elbing in 1349 and devastated the trading cities, but given the still fairly sparse population, it might be that the countryside got away with less severe losses. And, similar to what happened in the Hanse in general, the lure of the commercial opportunities in the cities was strong enough to compel peasants to leave their land and try their luck in the depopulated cities of Elbing, Torn, Braunsberg or Danzig. Whilst there was no proper nobility in Prussia, there were cities. Cities that were members of the Hanse. Whilst their cities' rights were much constrained compared to the other members of the League, they did have some independence. And the Teutonic Knights recognised that. The cities were invited to regular consultations with the Grand Master. Some had called this a Ständetag, a sort of early parliament. But at least before 1410, the order was flush with cash and did not need to raise taxes, which left the cities with limited bargaining power. Now, talking about finances, this gets us to the other interesting way the order organised its Prussian state. As the order had kept expanding the area of cultivated land in Prussia, it began to produce a huge agricultural surplus, in particular in grain. The grain was exported from Elbing and then after 1310 from Danzig, 
a city the Order had acquired in a war that we will discuss in more detail next week. If you have followed the series about the Hanseatic League, you will remember how significant the grain exports from Danzig were in feeding Norway, England and most importantly Flanders. The Teutonic Knights became a major commercial force in Northern Europe and participated in various embargoes against Flanders and Norway. And they combined that with their military capability. They did get involved in a number of the confrontations, including the wars with Denmark and England, where their weight counted for a lot. They also continued the export of amber that had already been Prussia's main business for more than a thousand years. Their biggest money spinner, though, was tourism. Chivalric adventure tourism, to be precise. After the fall of Acre in 1291, crusading in the Holy Land more or less stopped. There were still crusades in the south attacking the North African coast and others aimed at fighting heretics all across Western Europe. But the real spark had left the movement. That being said, the great knights and princes of Europe were still looking for a way to use their considerable skills in killing and maiming for a good cause. Wars were nearly incessant, as I said, but there were quite often dry stretches when there was no suitable campaign for a knight, leaving him at a bit of a loose end. And that is where Teutonic Knight Tours comes in. They organized something called a Reise, still the German word for journey. The Reise was technically a rolling crusade. It happened twice a year, almost every year from 1304 onwards. Noble crusaders from France, England, Scotland, the Empire, Poland, Denmark, Sweden would come to Prussia for a season of fighting the heathens. It was particularly popular with the English nobility. When Henry Bolingbroke, the future King Henry IV, arrived in 1390, he followed a long list of travellers to the Baltic. His father-in-law had been his grandfather and his ally in the future civil war, Henry Hotspur Percy. When Chaucer described the knight in his tale, he mentioned that he had travelled to Prussia, Lithuania and Russia and he had sat at the table of honour above all nations. It was a rite of passage, a sort of medieval grand tour that all young men of wealth and breeding should undertake. The Teutonic Order offered two trips, a summer and a winter trip. The summer trip started traditionally on August 15, but was less popular, as the crusaders would arrive when the ground was boggy and hard to pass on horses weighed down by armour. So the summer period was usually known as the Bautzeit, the time to build new fortresses or to reinforce already existing ones. The more glamorous season was the winter one, when the bogs were frozen and the knights could attack on the surfaces on the rivers and lakes. And not only that, because war in Western Europe was usually limited to the summer season, Intrepid knights who wanted to engage in their favourite sport all year round had limited options. Lithuania was close and it had a winter season. The crusaders would either arrive by ship from Bruges via Lübeck into Elbing, Danzig or Königsberg, or on the land route, again first to Lübeck and then along the coastal road through Pomerania into Danzig. Alternatively, there was the high road through Silesia and Poland to Torn and Prussia. Some travellers combined the Prussian Reise with a sort of world tour that took in Venice and the Holy Land and from there Spain, where they would join the Reconquista before returning home to La Douce France or Blighty. That is where the adventure trip became a fully-fledged medieval gap year. There was however a big difference to the gap year. 
These noble tourists did not journey with just a backpack containing three changes of underwear and a collection of achingly cool t-shirts. They journeyed in style. Henry Bolingbroke, admittedly the son of the richest man in England, brought about 200 retainers on the journey who travelled on three ships. His supplies included not just the latest and best military gear, but also his horses, dogs, falcons, tapestries, gold and silver plate and cutlery. He was accompanied by his chaplain, Dr. Cook, Harold's minstrels, pipers. The three or four heavy wagons that followed his progress contained his provisions, including the finest foodstuff, spices, herbs, wines from Bordeaux and the Rhine, clothes for feasts, equipment for tournaments, and so on and so on. And when one of these fighting pilgrims stopped in a town or city, he would expect a banquet to be held in his honour, where the local girls were asked to dance with the guests. In turn, the travelling prince would then make generous donations to the local churches and monasteries. He would also buy souvenirs along the way, altarpieces, jewellery, furs, and sometimes more exotic things like the ostrich Henry Bolingbroke acquired in Vienna. Occasionally, that ostentatious display of wealth planted unholy desires in the local aristocracy's mind, so we hear of multiple occasions where the crusaders were held for ransom, or at least relieved from the heavy load they were dragging across the muddy roads of Central Europe. Now, assuming you have managed to get to Prussia and you were still in possession of most of your limbs, weapons and provisions, the next place to go was the castle of Marienburg, modern-day Marbrock in Poland, the seat of the Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights. This, the largest brick castle in the world, never failed to impress the visitors. It covers a surface area of 18 hectares, has 145 square meters of floor space, just roughly double Buckingham Palace and comparable to the Louvre, both of which were built much later. The Marienburg is not just large. It is breathtaking in its beauty and coherence. At the heart is the square structure of the high castle, built on the standard floor plan of the Teutonic castles, that combined elements of monastic convents with a defensive nature. One side is taken up by the palace chapel, a structure that compare with the greatest of them all, the Saint-Chapelle in Paris. Then there is the Grand Master's Palace, where the shape of the interior spaces, the manner of vaulting and the illumination of the many enormous windows have no parallels in the residential architecture of medieval Europe as the UNESCO World Heritage experts describe it. The great refectory, the dining hall of the Knights, is another structure of exceptional value even on a global scale. This is due to the superb system of proportions and the innovative artistic form of the vaulting supported on slender columns. It is one of the most magnificent and elegant secular interiors that European Gothic architecture has produced. So again, the UNESCO World Heritage Experts. My favourite structure is the Dunsker, something you find in most Teutonic Knights' castles. These are large latrine towers, toilets to you and me, that emptied into a stream or river and is connected to the main castle by a large covered walkway. These were needed because the Order's castles were permanently garrisoned by a much larger number of men than normal European castles. Just another indication of how different the Teutonic Knights' state was. The noble guests were usually given an audience with the Grand Master and invited to a banquet in that fabulous dining hall, which, by the way, had an underfloor heating system 
that could raise the temperature in the 800 square meter room from 6 to 22 degrees in just 20 minutes. The dinner was almost certainly splendid, though in keeping with the order's strict rules, no women were allowed. Visitors keep pointing out that, amidst the splendor, the knights remained austere, eating the same modest meal and wearing the same unadorned clothes. They had no personal property and, in war, they had the same weapons and same armor, all provided for by the order. The guests, honored as they were, were not invited to stay inside the enormous castle. They were expected to find their own accommodation for themselves and their retinue in town. Not even food or drink was provided for free. From Marienburg, the crusaders set off for Königsberg, the jumping-off point for the actual Reise. So, what was the Reise, that crusade, actually? The chronicler Peter von Duisburg described it as follows. Quote, in the year 1283, when 53 years had already passed since the beginning of the war against the Prussian people and all the tribes in the aforementioned land had been conquered and exterminated, so that not one remained who did not humbly bow his neck to the yoke of the Holy Roman Church, the brothers of the German house began the war against that powerful and extremely stubborn and warlike people that live next to the Prussian land on the other side of the Memel in the land of Lithuania. End quote. As we have heard before, the Lithuanians proved much harder to beat than the Prussians and Livonians. And, spoiler alert, they never were conquered. They did have two things in their favor, though. For one, they were able to unify in the face of the oncoming attacks. And secondly, Lithuania proved even more geographically impenetrable than Prussia, Latvia and Estonia. The Teutonic Knights maintained a string of border fortresses that stretched from Memel, modern-day Kleipeda, along the Neman River, so that's the Memel River in German, to Ragnit. Across from there was the Wilderness, a 30 to 50 kilometer stretch of no man's land that could be crossed only under the most favorable weather conditions, namely in the winter, when the swampy ground was frozen hard. The difficulty of the terrain meant that any campaign, the actual riser, needed a lot of advanced planning. The guests were asked to keep food and equipment ready for immediate departure. The knights would bring their own gears and supplies, but none for the other crusaders. The order to depart could come at any point, but usually they were given about a week's warning. The purpose of the attacks on Lithuania were the same as in all the Northern Crusades. It was to convert the locals to Christianity by force. But as time went by, this objective had become less and less realistic. The Ryzen started in 1304 and lasted about a hundred years, but in the end the borders shifted only marginally. In fact, it seems the main purpose of these campaigns wasn't to convert the Lithuanians. Of the 307 campaigns, the historian Werner Paravicini analyzed in his 700-page work on the Prussian Rising, he categorized 127 as pure devastation campaigns. 35 were set up as sieges, 38 as campaigns to build or rebuild fortifications, and only 10 that involved an actual battle against the Lithuanians, and of these three, only three were planned as battles, whilst the other seven were the consequence of an unexpected Lithuanian counterattack. 
The military campaigns were also very short, usually about two to three weeks, of which a chunk must have been taken up just by cutting a way through the wilderness. All that is why I call them adventure holidays, not actual crusades. Sure, the guests are given the opportunity to do some actual fighting, but in 95% of cases only against unarmed peasants. And by the time the powerful Lithuanian cavalry forces come to relieve the pressure on the villages, the brave Christian knights are back in the woods, carrying their plunder and the occasional prisoner back to Königsberg. It was a very controlled risk that made sure that the honourable guest could come back again. Once the expedition had returned to Königsberg, it was tea and medals. The order set up a table of honour with 12 seats, some reimagining of the round table of King Arthur. Only the most valiant knights were given the great honour to sit at that table. Or the richest one. And that is what Chaucer's knight refers to when he boasts that he had sat at the table of honour above all nations. And if there were amongst the crusaders some who had not yet been knighted, they could be daubed by the master's sword. It was a great way for young men to be introduced into the chivalric world without too much risk that the precious heir to the duchy or county would come to serious harm. So if this was just a little bit of fun with little to no military significance, why did the Teutonic Knights organise these trips? Well, let's take a look at the bills Henry Bolingbroke, the son of John of Gaunt, and one of the richest men in England, wrecked up on his eight-month jaunt to Prussia. He spent £564 on wages for his retinue, 400 on gifts for various potentates and the leaders of the order, £75 on silver kitchenware made in Prussia. He hired boats, horses and wagons to carry his stuff. He had to hire accommodation everywhere he went, as the order would not cater for that. And he had to feed all his men. And let's not forget the gambling and other entertainment. That bill came to £4,360. More than the Teutonic Order spent in that same period on acquiring the whole island of Gotland. There you have it. These guests were a huge boon to the Prussian economy, and as we will see, when they stopped coming, the finances of the order were hit hard. The end of the Risen, and with it the end of the Golden Age of the Teutonic Knights, came at the very end of the 14th century. And why it came is what we are going to discuss next week. And I hope you will join us again. Now I've put a link to the truly astounding work by Werner Paravicini about the Ryzen into the show notes. Even though I've gone far beyond the time I had initially allocated to this story, I have barely scratched the surface of his analysis. If you want to know more about this unique phenomena, take a look. It's full of great little vignettes of life in the Middle Ages. It is unfortunately though in German. If you look for an English text, you can find more detail in Eric Christensen's the Nordic Crusades.